And so the president sat at his desk in the White House on a winter's evening, and with all of his work done for the day, he turned to a project that had been on his mind for some time. He wanted to create, quote, these are his words, he wanted to create the most sublime and benevolent code of morals that has ever been offered to man. And so to set out on this quest, he took out two Bibles and opened them to the story of Jesus. Then he opened the drawer and he pulled out a sharp knife and he began cutting up one Bible and then the other. And this president was Thomas Jefferson and the year was 1804. See, Thomas Jefferson himself was devoted to the teachings of Jesus, but he was also skeptical of the writers of the four gospels. He considered them all to be untrustworthy historians. And so Jefferson, knowing what was best, started to create his own Bible. In fact, in a letter he wrote to John Adams in 1813, Jefferson said this, I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting out verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter, which is evidently his, meaning it's, it's, it's actual Jesus, and it, actually Jesus's, and which is as easily distinguishable as a diamond in a dunghill. His first version has been lost to history, but he didn't think that was a good version anyway. And so after he left politics, after he retired to his mansion in Monticello, he began to work on his second version, kind of his magnum opus. And according to the Smithsonian, Jefferson cut out passages with some sort of very sharp blade using blank paper, glued down lines from each of the four gospels in four columns, Greek and Latin on one side and French and English on the other. And in 1820, he bound this 84-page volume in red red leather and entitled it The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. See, for Thomas Jefferson, the divine and the miraculous literally didn't make the cut. Anything he found contrary to reason, anything that he didn't think was actually Jesus, he just left it out. So that's all of basically most of the New Testament, none of the epistles, none of the book of Acts. He narrowed it down to the Gospels. And then in the Gospels, he cut out only what he thought was actually true of Jesus, as if he was a subject matter expert on it. He kept the teachings on Jesus' morality and ethics, but anything that hinted at divinity or the supernatural was left out. The life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, his printed edition, ends with the death of Jesus and his burial. And that's it. There's no resurrection. There's no Easter Sunday. Stephen Prothero, who's a professor down at, uh, of religion at Boston University, said, the Jefferson Bible, as it's commonly known, is scripture by subtraction. And he cut a lot. Most of the Bible is cut out. The problem with Jefferson's approach is that when you subtract the divinity of Jesus, you're left with no Jesus at all. So today, as we continue in our series, we believe in looking at the Apostles' Creed, we come to that line that says, his only son, our Lord. And last week, we looked at the humanity of Christ, and this week, we're looking at his divinity. This morning, we're going to see the relationship of the Son. We're going to see how God the Father and God the Son enjoy a unique relationship founded on love. And then from there, we're going to look at the reign of the Son. We're going to see that Jesus is the reigning and ruling Lord of Lords and King of Kings precisely because he is true God of true 
God. He has the right to be our Lord because he is God. Then finally, we'll look at the role of the son. What, what role does Jesus play? And in particular, how does his divinity play into that role? What did God the son come to accomplish? So we'll see the relationship, the reign, and the role. Let's begin with the relationship. Hebrews 1.1 said it like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. At the time when this letter was written, there were some first century Jewish Christians who had abandoned their faith. Their hang up was similar, actually, to Thomas Jefferson's which tells us nothing new is under the sun, right? They couldn't accept the deity of Christ. And so they they abandoned the faith. They just couldn't wrap their minds around this man who was also God. And so one of the reasons that the the writer of Hebrews wrote his letter was to uh, argue for and to address this problem that Jesus is in fact God. Now, if you read the letter, it's masterful, it's brilliant, the way that he uh, uh, alludes to Old Testament things and brings them into fulfillment is is just uh, spectacular. You could sum up the whole letter of Hebrews like this. Jesus is greater. I mean, chapter after chapter after chapter, the writer of Hebrews goes to show that Jesus is greater than the angels. He is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the sacrificial system. He is greater than everything precisely because he is infinitely good, great, glorious, and and gracious. He is greater precisely because Jesus is God. And in verse one, he says, In previous generations, God would speak to us through the prophets. So God would raise up someone and give them his word to give to the people. But he says, in these days, he's spoken to us through his son. Now let's stop right there. The very fact that God has spoken at all is a gift and a miracle. The fact that underneath the seats right now you have a copy of God's word is in fact a miracle. See, God wasn't obligated to give us his word. He wasn't obligated to raise up prophets to reveal who he is and to communicate his instructions on how to reconnect with him. But by his grace, God the Father wants to restore what is broken and wants to reconnect with his people. And so he's given us and preserved for us his word. And we shouldn't take that lightly. And then if that weren't enough, the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, he has spoken decisively, perfectly, and finally by his son. Now we live in a culture who understands the value of clear and effective communication, right? I mean, billions of dollars are spent each year on advertising alone. We just had one of the the blockbuster commercial uh, events of the year, right, in the Super Bowl, right? People pay top dollar to get their message out knowing that on this day, on, uh, for these few hours, more people in the United States are tuned in and you have a captive audience to hear and to listen and to receive their message, Political campaigns rise and fall on getting their message out. In fact, one of the barometers of health in our human relationships is what? 
how well we can communicate with each other. In the midst of all of the communicative noise, the most successful businesses, the most successful campaigns, the most successful relationships know how to cut through the noise to communicate. In Christ, God the Father has cut through the noise of human sin and suffering, not with some glitzy ad campaign, but with a person, his only son, Jesus Christ. Raymond Brown says it like this, in Christ, God has closed the greatest communication gap of all time, that which exists between a holy God and sinful mankind. There's this gap that just could not be uh, bridged on our own. And so God himself sent the son to help us reconnect. Now, let's talk a minute about this relationship between the father and the son. Now, this is super important because as we look at their relationship, it's actually going to tell us a whole lot about who God is and what he is like. Look with me again at Hebrews 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, The writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is greater than the angels because Jesus is God's son. He's actually God. To the son, the father says, I will be to you a father and you will be to me a son. And there's a uniqueness to this relationship that no one else has. See, when he calls, when we look at this father and son relationship, it it speaks to their fundamental identity and the uniqueness of that relationship. Because God the Father has always been the Father to the Son, and likewise, God the Son has always been the Son to the Father. Now, you might be asking, why is that important? Well, I'm really glad you asked. I have a whole sermon to tell you about it. Here's why that's important. Because it means that for eternity, before there was anything else, and I know even just thinking about that is hard and difficult, right? But before we were here, before there was a planet, before there was a sun for us to circle on, before there was anything else, God existed in relationship, in community. Remember, we've been saying this over the last several weeks. God is triune. He is not a singular God. God is one being with three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're equal in power and glory. They're unified in their purpose and mission, and they're diverse in their roles and responsibilities. But before God became ruler of anything, before he was creator of anything, he has always been a relational God. And that tells us something foundational and important, that because God is fundamentally a relational God, he is fundamentally a God of love. He's a God of love. What that tells us is that before God created and became creator, he was the father to his son. Hebrews 1, 2 tells us that it was through the son that God the father created the world. That's how we know that God the son was there before it all came about, which means God the son has always been with the father. We saw that last week in John chapter 1. Remember these words with me. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We later go on to find out that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is none other than Jesus. It's the son of God. This word, the son of God has been with the father since the beginning. This means that God the son is the eternal son. There was never a time when the son did not exist. There was never a time when he was not the son to the father. So what was happening before the creation of the world? Jesus actually gives us some insight. In John 17, verse 24, Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he kind of invites us into this dialogue. He's praying out loud, but he's, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says this, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was going on before the creation of the world? A loving father and son dynamic. Before creation, God the Father and God the Son existed in a loving relationship. Now, here's what that means. Love is not something God has. Love is something God is. It's fundamental to his identity. It's, it, he, he can't even operate outside of love. It's who he is. And that tells us he delights to share his love and his goodness with us. See, God's love is not for selfish hoarding, but for generous sharing. And that's precisely why the Father sends the Son, so that by his love, so that by sending the Son, his love may be shared and enjoyed by all who would receive him. And a couple verses down in John 17, verse 26, Jesus specifically tells us that. He's praying and he's telling the Father, I've made known to them, his disciples, your name, and I will continue to make it known, why? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He says, the whole reason I'm here is so that this beautiful relationship that you and I have, this relationship of love, I am here to share it so that everybody may share in the Father's love. Let me ask you this. How would your relationship with God change? How would your perspective shift if you went from seeing God as a God who is taking something from you and started to see God as the God who gives everything to you? How many times do we, when we think about God, we go, God, you're, you're, you're trying to take something from me. You're trying to withhold something from me. There's this thing that I want, and I look at your, your rule book, and it's saying I can't have it, and I'm frustrated. What if we shifted from that to seeing a God who says, I am giving you everything? And the fact that you think you need something here is a misperception. Like, like a child sometimes can't understand why a loving parent would say no. They just can't wrap their minds around it. But a parent knows to withhold this from them is a good thing. I mean, if it were up to my kids, they would eat Skittles and Hershey Kisses for every meal, right? But a loving father cannot do that, right? They would be malnourished. They would get uh, juvenile diabetes. It would not be good, right? It would be bad for them. But they can't often wrap their minds around the love of saying no, and in those moments, I ask, you know I love you, don't you? You know I would give you anything 
that is good and true and beautiful. So when you can't understand a decision, understand who I am and that I love you and that I'm for you. How would our relationship with God, if we shifted our perspective from a God who is withholding or taking things from us, as if he needed those things, right? From a God who is giving us everything. Would it stir in your heart a heart of gratitude and delight? Would it reframe your entire relationship? See, friends, God did not create out of need. He wasn't lonely or bored. He didn't need something to do. So he was like, let's just create all these humans and tinker around with them. That's not his purpose in creation. He created out of a divine joy to share his goodness and love with us. That's why it's important that we see God as a God fundamentally of love and grace who seeks to share it. So he sends the son so that, he might sh- that we might share in his love and enjoy him forever. Michael Reeves says it like this, the father sent the son to make himself known. Meaning not that he wanted to simply download some information about himself, but that the love the father eternally had for the son might be in those who believe in him. And don't miss this, that we might enjoy the son as the Father always has. See, God cares more about your enjoyment than even you do. He sent the Son not to give us some information, but to bring about our transformation, a transformation that comes when we believe in God, the Son, and enjoy Him. The Son exists in a relationship to the Father, and we are amazingly, graciously invited in to that relationship. Now let's look at the reign of the son. If that's the relationship that we're invited into, let's look at the reign. Hebrews 1.8 says it like this. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The writer of Hebrews, just like the writers of the Apostles' Creed, have unapologetically and directly called Jesus Christ the Lord, right? To say Jesus Christ is Lord is to make a very bold statement. See, if you read throughout the Old Testament, you'll see page after page that God the Father is referred to as the Lord. Oftentimes, you'll see it in your Bibles as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And way back in Exodus chapter three, God revealed to Moses his covenant name. You may have heard it said Yahweh. It was his name that he wanted his people to personally call him. Now, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, Yahweh became kurios, okay? Hang with me for a second. Kurios is the Greek word that means Lord. When they translated it from Hebrew to Greek, they thought, man, God's name is so holy. We don't want to write it too flippantly. And so instead, and again, there's no translation for for Yahweh into Greek. So they said, let's use the word Kyrios, which means the Lord. Now, why is this language history lesson important? See, at the writing of the New Testament, people used the words Yahweh and Kyrios interchangeably. They be, it just almost became synonymous for the word God. So when they say, would say uh, Yahweh is Lord, he is kur- kurios, they're saying they are the exact same thing. 
Now, when we get to the New Testament, we even see Jesus calling Yahweh Kurios, the Lord. And here's, what remar- here's what's remarkable. After Jesus' ascension, as the rest of the New Testament was being written, the book of Acts, the letters, the epistles, all of it, when they referred to Jesus, they referred to him as Kurios, the Lord. Something uh, incredible has happened there. All of the weight, all of the freight of the word kurios that was on God the Father has now been given to the Son. And they're, they're not haphazard with their language. They know exactly what they're doing. When they say that Jesus is Lord, they know exactly what they're doing. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 36. I'm going to give you just a couple of examples, but just so that the sermon isn't 20 hours long, I'm going to give you two. But it's all throughout the New Testament. Acts 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Look at Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, Jesus is not merely a God-inspired man. He is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. They aren't calling him God because they lack a category to call him. This is written in the Greco-Roman world. There's plenty of demigods and, and other words they could have used. They know exactly what they're doing. They call him God because that's who he is. They did not play fast and loose with the term God. They didn't call him Lord because he was God-like or Lord-like. They called him Lord because he was God. To call Jesus Lord is to call him God. In fact, Hebrews 1 not only calls him God, but describes Jesus with all of the divine attributes as the one who creates, who sustains and reigns over the universe. Look at verse 2. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Listen to this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know what I love about this passage? The writer doesn't even make an argument or a case for the deity of Christ. He just says it as if it is so patently and gloriously obvious. He doesn't even need a well-articulated argument. Last week, we looked at how Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, right? He is fully God and fully man. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who has always existed in relationship to the Father, at a particular point in time, added to his divine nature a human nature, That's what happened. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He took on flesh and became human. He didn't stop being divine to become human. He just added to his divine nature a human nature in the person of Jesus. And remember, we said the two natures aren't fused together like an alloy. They're not blended together like a smoothie. In one person, there are two distinct natures. So everything that is true about humanity is true about Jesus except for sin. Everything. He had to eat. He had to breathe. When he was hungry, he needed to be fed. When he was thirsty, he needed a drink of water. And everything that is true about divinity is true about Jesus. So when you think about all the big divine attributes, omnipotence, omniscience, omnibenevolence, eternality, holiness, all of it, the fullness 
of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, all of it. Now, last week we looked at his human nature. Thank you. Praise be to God. Last week we looked at his human nature. If you missed uh, that sermon, please catch up on it. This week I want to focus in on his divine nature. In this passage, we see three realities of the divinity of Jesus that makes him the rightful reigning Lord. The first is radiance of his glory. Verse three speaks to Jesus having glory. Where other prophets spoke about the glory of God, here we see that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, what is glory? That's one of those Christian words we throw around. Glory is the weight of God's significance and the brilliance of his splendor. It's the reality, of, if you were to take the sum of his attributes, it would evoke worship in you. And his presence demands a response. In fact, when I just shouted out to you all of Jesus' divine attributes, you, some of you couldn't help but worship. That's his glory. You recognized his glory in that moment. You know you're standing next to glory when the significance of what you're standing next to feels weighty and its presence draws something out of you. I'll give you an example. I grew up in Houston, Texas. Officially, come on now. About that 281, you know what I'm talking about. You know what 281 is. All right. Officially, the city is below sea level. Do you know you could get below sea level? That's where I lived. It's below flat. And I'll never forget the first time I drove to Colorado and I saw the Rocky Mountains. And I'll never forget it. I just stood there. I couldn't stop looking. It made me feel small. And people who were native there were like, oh yeah, what, what's the big deal? It's a mountain. I was like, what's the big deal? What are you talking... It made me feel like I wasn't the most important thing on the planet. I was a punk teenager at the time. I thought I was the most important thing on the planet. And when I stood next to that mountain, I realized, nope, it's not me. It made me realize that whoever made that was deserving of my worship. Now, I say this to you. I wasn't even a Christian at the time. But I instinctively felt the need not only to worship someone, but to thank someone. I just didn't know who I was supposed to thank or worship. That's glory. When it moves you to worship, you know you're in the presence of glory. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is worthy of your worship precisely because he is the radiance of, the splendor of, the beauty of the glory of God. Gregory of Nyssa, who was a pastor in the late fourth century, you don't need to know him. I like him. He's great. He said it like this. As the lamp from the light is of the nature of that which sheds brightness. Okay, we don't talk like that anymore. What he's saying is when you turn on a light, you know that the light and the electric, there's something connected between the light you see and the electricity feeding into it, okay? As they are united, for as soon as the lamp appears, the light that comes from it shines out simultaneously. So in this place, the apostle would have us consider that the son is of the father and that the father is never without the son. Here it is. For it is impossible that glory should be without radiance as it is impossible that the lamp should be without brightness, right? The glory of the father has to have the brilliant shining out and that's who Jesus is. What is a lamp without its brightness, right? It's of no use. That's what he's saying. What is the father without the son? The son is the radiance, the brilliance, and the glory of the son. Number two, the nature of God. 
In this passage, we see that Jesus has the nature of God. See, where other prophets helped to explain the nature of God, here we see that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. This text is crystal clear that Jesus possesses a divine nature. The word for imprint here is the Greek word character, which sounds like the word we have for character, right? Reveals your essence. It's referred to this, uh, the, the word character was this imprinting tool that you would make and then you would stamp coins so that every single coin had the exact same imprint, right? That's how you know when you're handed uh, currency, you know what it's worth based on what it looks like, right? You want the same impression on every single tool. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus has the divine trademark. Whatever is divine, boom, stamped on Jesus. He has it all. He is an exact representation of divinity. He is an exact representation of God's essence and being. Philippians 2 says the same thing in verse 6. It says, Jesus was in the form of God. That word for form refers to the essential qualities of a being. Whatever is essential about God's divinity, the Son also has. Jesus possesses all of the same divine attributes. Whatever attributes and quality God the Father has, God the Son has as well. God the Son is so much like his Father. In John 14, Jesus said these words. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What a bold statement, right? He says, no one has ever seen God, but guess what? If you have seen me, it's like seeing the Father. We are so much alike. Colossians 1.15 says, speaking of, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here the word firstborn doesn't mean created. It means that he has all the rights, the roles, and the responsibilities of a firstborn. It's a regal term, actually. Speaking about uh, the, the, the prince of the king, that the son of the king, the firstborn, has an inheritance coming to him and a right to rule and a responsibility to do so alongside his father. That's why it always refers to Jesus as sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Look with me at Colossians 2.9. For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 1 John 5.20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is true God and eternal life. Here's one more. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of our rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. There were so many verses I had to leave out today. It's overwhelming. You know why Thomas Jefferson's Bible only had 84 pages? Because all the rest of them speak to his divinity. It is so clear in the New Testament that Jesus is fully God, that the writers don't even feel the need to argue for it. Everyone who saw him knew there was something about him. Third, we see in this passage the power of God. Where other prophets described the power of God, here in this text we see Jesus is the power of God. The writer says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is holding all things together right now. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 complements this well. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now you would say to create and sustain the universe requires an enormous amount of knowledge, power, and presence, right? In fact, you could say it would take omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence to pull off something as big and grand as creating everything in the universe and sustaining it and making sure it doesn't just all fall apart. And you'd be correct. It does take omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence to pull something off like that. And that's exactly the point being made here. Jesus is all powerful in every sense of the word from before time began and forevermore. Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Friends, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God and he reigns and rules over everything because all things were created by him and for him and all things are held together by him. That's why he's the reigning and ruling Lord. When you create something, you have creative rights over it. That's the reign of the sun. Now let's look at the role of the sun. Why did he come? Verse three says this. After Jesus making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This verse succinctly captures the role of the sun. It says that Jesus came to make purification for sins. Now, before I get to the word purification, let's define what sin is. The New City Catechism defines sin like this. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, meaning you live your life as if he does not exist, as if he did not create all that you are even walking on, as if he is not holding all things, including yourself, together. Sin is not being or doing what God requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. See, sin is not just merely breaking a rule. It's, 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 it's way bigger than all of that. It's like living your life as if God does not exist, as if you were an autonomous individual. Sin pollutes and contaminates us and everything around us. Sin is breaking God's law. Sin tramples on human flourishing. Sin takes what is good and it perverts it for selfish, manipulative purposes. Sin disintegrates and decays everything in its path. And it is the defining problem in humanity. Sin is underneath every single problem that you face, every one of them. There's hunger in the world today because of sin. There's strife in our relationships because of sin. The problem is sin. Because of sin, life itself is lost. See, sin brings about death. And from the moment our parents ate of the fruit, the forbidden tree, until now, we have felt the cold sting of death in its pull and its draw away from life. Because of sin, we've all lost our place. Everyone has this distant memory of Eden. Anytime someone says, and this world is not the way it's supposed to be. They're referencing that point where it all went wrong, even if they don't know the story. That pull in them to say, 
this world is not the way it's supposed to be presupposes that there's a way it's supposed to be, right? It's those memories from Eden that have been transferred down. We have this vague sense that we all used to have a place to call home. We all had this memory that we lived in the life-giving joy of God's presence, but no matter how hard we try, we can't find our way back home. And because of sin, we've lost meaning. Everything has become distorted and twisted. That's why your work is tiresome and futile. That's why everything is harder. That's why relational connectivity is filled with strife. We're driven by fear instead of love, and we can't seem to find contentment, satisfaction, purpose, and meaning that truly lasts. And the writer of Hebrews says, the Son of God came to make it all right, to make purification for sin. What does that mean? The writer of Hebrews is telling us purification just means to make it clean again, right? To clean up the mess. The writer of Hebrews is alluding to this Old Testament sacrificial system. The word for purification is this priestly term where someone would make a sacrifice to cleanse someone from their sin. So in the Old Testament, here's how it worked. You would bring an animal to the priest to make a sacrifice for your sin. You would, you would know, man, something has gone wrong and I know I need to make it right. So here is my sacrifice. Now you had to bring a good animal. It couldn't be your scrubby ones, right? You had to bring an animal free of defect, meaning it had to be healthy, had to be good, which means that it cost you something, right? You knew you were giving up something that could provide clothing for you, that could provide um, food for you. Had to be, it was costly, and you would give it to the priest, and there was an exchange that happened in that moment. The animal paid the penalty the sinner deserved, and the idea was that you got the innocence of the animal. You see, you came convicted with guilt. This animal did nothing wrong. It's the helpless, innocent victim. You give it to the priest, the priest takes it, and in exchange, you walk away with its innocence. It dies instead of you. The purity of the animal was transferred to you. And you would do this often, regularly, ongoing. It wasn't a one-time thing, and you did it to deal with your sin. And then, on a bigger scale, on the Day of Atonement that came every single year, Yom Kippur, the high priest would make purification for all the people. And he would take two goats, okay, without defect. And the first goat over here is the sacrificial goat, okay? Now, this is the goat that would be slaughtered on the altar, it was the bloody victim. It was the life given in exchange for the, the sin of the people. Now, the word atonement is just this rich biblical word that means to pay the necessary price. This animal, the sacrificial goat, paid the price for the sin of the people. Because see, in God's economy, blood is the price to pay for the cleansing and forgiving of sin. The slaughtered goat would satisfy God's wrath, which is his settled opposition to sin. So God, because of our sin, there's this wrath that is building up and the sacrificial goat kind of let the pressure off of that wrath each year. The goat died so the people could live. It was a substitute. Instead of you dying on the altar of the sacrifice, the goat died. Now the second goat over here was taken. Now the high priest would, would grab him by the face and he would speak the sins of the people onto this goat you can imagine that exchange, right? He's just telling him, for all that we've done, and he's confessing the sins of the people onto the goat, and the goat's just kind of receiving it, right? Then the scapegoat, as he was called, that's where we get our term scapegoat, 
was cast out of the, uh, the gate, cast out of the city to go into the wilderness. Now, when I say wilderness, don't think green pastures. The goat's like, man, I'm out of here. It's awesome. The wilderness was a place to die into the desert to be ravaged and eaten by wild animals. But in that moment, as the sin of the people were transferred to this animal, and as the goat left the camp, the sins and the guilt and the impurity were symbolically removed. So on the Day of Atonement, wrath is forgiven and the sins are carried out and they're cleansed. And this grand ceremony would happen every single year. The next day, you felt good that day, but the next day, you know, it's coming again. I've already messed up. 364 more days till I feel good again. Every year, the Day of Atonement would come again and again. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the great high priest who makes the sacrifice to cleanse us from our sins. But instead of offering the blood of bulls and goats, he offers himself. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation just means to satisfy God's wrath. That's the sacrificial goat. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is perfect. He's the the, the spotless lamb of God. But in Christ, all of our sin went on him so that he became the sacrificial lamb and that we took on his righteousness. Remember I told you how the goat was innocent and his impurity, our impurity was transferred to him and his innocence and purity was transferred to us. That's how sacrifice works. That's what happened to Jesus. All of his perfection and righteousness was replaced and exchanged. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. How did Jesus make purification for sin? By being wounded. He is the perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was fully human so that he could stand in our place as our one-to-one substitute. He had to be human so that he could die for our sin. That's why the sacrifice of animals was never complete because it, it, it was, it was a, a, a livestock animal for a human. It didn't, didn't translate. He's fully human so that he can be our substitute. But Jesus is also fully God so that he's able to bear the full weight of God's wrath for sin. See, friends, the depth of our sin and the sheer magnitude of our compounded sin in the world demands a sacrifice of comparative value, Right? And Jesus is the one who is God himself. He's the only one who can bring that kind of value to the altar. And unlike high priests who had to make the sacrifice over and over and over again, Jesus is the the truer and greater high priest who makes a sacrifice that actually and finally and decisively cleanses people from their sins. That's why it says when Jesus was done, he sat down at the right hand of God. After he gave up his life as a sacrifice, he said, it is finished, it is done. He was raised again and he ascended where? To sit at the right hand of God. Did you know the priests never sat down? Their job was never done. There was always activity in the temple. 
there's multiple shifts so that, because uh, one man can't just stay up on and on. And so when one shift ended, another began because there was always work to be done. When Jesus finished making purification of sin, he sat down. The work is finished. It's done. Jesus came to accomplish once and for all the work of redemption. And because the work is finished, we can have our life back. Because the work is finished, we have a place to call home again. And because the work is finished, life now has meaning. So as we close, how do you respond to something like that? Paul says it like this. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus is the Son of God, the Lord, who willingly came and died for our sin and our place. So how do we respond? Paul says in light of who Jesus is and all that he's given up for us, we respond by bowing down and worshiping him. See, to bow the knee means that your minds have grasped the immensity of his love for you, that your heart has entered in to realize the brokenness that Jesus entered in and was broken himself. It means that our hearts have been moved by his love and we've been changed. And so our posture is one of gratitude and all that's left for us is to get down on a knee and say, Jesus, you are my God, my savior, and my Lord. See, if Jesus is merely an inspiring figure for you, you haven't confessed him as Lord. If Jesus is merely the default for lack of a better option, you haven't confessed him as Lord. If he's just merely one among many of your guiding lights, you have not confessed him as Lord. If Jesus is a consultant to you, someone you kind of ask for advice from time to time as you navigate life, then you have not confessed Jesus as Lord. If Jesus is your genie in the bottle, who you, who you, you kind of go to sometimes to help make situations go right, then Jesus is not your Lord. Friends, when we say Jesus is Lord, we don't mean he's Lord over all except my kingdom. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying, Jesus, you are Lord over all, including me. You can direct my steps. In fact, you should because you know what's best. When Jesus is Lord, you you say to him, you can have my good and my all because you are for me and you are with me. You're saying, Jesus, you are all I need because when I have you, I have everything. When Jesus is your Lord, he is more important than any relationship, any career, any status, any security, anything. And it's like you're saying to him, Jesus, my life, my very life is to know you, love you, and follow you. That's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. Anything or anyone that you try to maintain control on your life, to deny Jesus his rightful place as your Lord, any area of your life where you deny him, friends, will be stunted and it will begin to decay until Jesus is Lord over it. And listen, I know that giving anyone or anything that kind of place in your life is terrifying. It requires vulnerability. And you shouldn't just give that up to anybody, but we're talking about the God who gave up his very life to prove his love for you. Did you know that the word vulnerability comes from the Latin word that means wound? It means wound. No one has ever become more vulnerable than Jesus. 
he was wounded for us. Our very sins were removed because he was wounded in our place. And that's why God has exalted him to the place of Lord. He's the only Lord that when you serve him, you don't become less, you become more. You don't become empty, you become complete. When, you, when Jesus is your Lord, you become alive. Seven mile, is Jesus your Lord? Is he your Lord? There's no greater question for you to honestly and truthfully answer today. And I'll let J.I. Packer have the last words in our sermon. He asks this, is he, is Jesus then your Lord? For all who say the creed, this question is inescapable. For how can you say our Lord in church until you have first said my Lord in your heart? Let's pray.